Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, the premier federal agency that uh, does so much with the coast uh, coastlines of America is NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, my favorite federal agency. And uh, today we're going to take a tour uh, through NOAA and what this agency does and how it uh, performs uh, through the eyes of, I think, an extraordinary guest, uh, Skip Taberge. Uh, Skip has been and was with uh, NOAA for a, almost five decades, Tyler, uh, and has a wealth of knowledge about this agency and what it does. And so I'm really looking forward to taking a stroll through the NOAA universe with uh with skip and uh it should be it should be an interesting conversation you know if this was a professional radio broadcast you might try one of these out for size ladies and gentlemen we're talking to a man who was a captain on a noah research vessel uh served a full career uh doing that which first of all 27 years in the noah core that's right and first of all, if that if we get to talk about that, which I'm really excited about, and I think y'all will be as well, and then we get to talk to the chief of ref, the acting chief of reference, I guess we could say. Yeah, this is what Skip does after being a captain uh, in the NOAA Corps. He comes back and has this whole other career, basically at the what they call the NOAA Central Library. Yes, 23 which, years in that role, which I'm really excited to learn about. Uh, kind of a, a hidden little gem here. Uh, and then, of course, Skip is an interesting fellow with uh, a lot of perspective to offer us more broadly. So we get to open this conversation up to the future and and what Skip, what insights Skip can offer all of us. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be a real good one. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. 
Well, Skip, uh, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you very much for taking time to join us and our listeners on ASPN. Uh, As we talked about at the intro, almost five decades with NOAA in your career. Uh, I don't know if that's the longest tenured employee in the history of NOAA, but I bet it's close. (laughs) It's got to be up there. It's got to be up there. Uh, Skip, uh, would you be so kind... uh, Having devoted your professional life to this federal agency, uh, what motivated you to join the agency and to stay with it for five decades? Uh, well, I was uh, raised on the actually north shore of Monterey Bay. I always lived close to the ocean, uh, at least growing up. Uh, my my uh, father was a uh, merchant mariner, uh, captain with American President Lines, so I was uh, fairly familiar with uh, the ocean, shall we say, uh, lived with it, grew up surfing, going to the beach, this sort of thing. Uh, I went to a mining school, actually, to get away from going to sea, uh, Colorado School of Mines. But uh, uh, oddly enough, I, I uh, interviewed the Coast and Geodetic Survey prior to graduation. And, uh, well, to make a long story short, I was uh, ended up in the Coast and Geodetic Survey at that time. ESA, the, uh, it was uh, that was a, an arm of what was the Environmental Science Services Administration, a uh, forerunner and, of NOAA. And this was 1968, uh, is that right? Uh, 69, 69. 1969. Yeah, right. Uh, NOAA was actually formed the next year, 1970. Uh, the uh, Yeah, I ended up going into uh, NOAA, well, as a core, then NOAA core. Uh, went to a ship that was up in the Arctic uh, doing hydrographic surveying, I, I actually, which is making nautical charts, surveying for nautical charts. Um, actually liked the life. Uh, I didn't mind going to sea. I uh, also had, uh, I, I guess you call it a modicum of curiosity about uh, the world around us. And a uh, um, couple of assignments uh, with NOAA uh, at that time. Well, like I said, 1970 it formed. Went to geodesy, a land land uh, assignment, uh, precise land surveying. Then off to uh, a ship assignment, a mobile hydrographic field party, and I just liked the work. I mean, it was uh, uh, I was uh, I, I was sort of a natural for it, uh, and uh, uh, Noah was a natural for me. Uh, that's about the best I can say. No, no, no. That's that's a great. That was a great answer because we covered first of all, kind of your uh, your early bio uh and obviously in a minute where I, I feel like we need to get through this phase so you're you go in to to what's not even the noah core yet noah doesn't exist in 1969 when you come in uh and you're doing the what did you call that agency that it that was the predecessor that you came into well uh the the work that I was doing was affiliated with with a uh, I, I guess you call it a division of NOAA or not not NOAA at the time ESSA. ESSA, ESSA was what, what is that? What's ESSA? Environmental Science Services Administration. Okay. Uh, so that, that doesn't exist from, anymore. <laughs> yeah, that that came together from the old Coast and Geodetic Survey, which was nautical charting, oceanography, uh, plus the the precise land surveying into things. Plus the weather service, the idea being that uh, the science of both agencies merged together would help understand the ocean atmosphere uh, interface and interaction 
better than the two agencies working uh, as individual entities. Uh, so that, that agency existed for about five years. And uh, then in 1970, uh, the exact date, October 3rd, uh, that's when NOAA was formed under the, the uh, Nixon administration. Um, that's when they brought in fisheries as well, which added, you had the physical sciences with the earth sciences with the Coast and Geodetic Survey. You had the atmospheric sciences with the Weather Service. And then you had the marine biological sciences with the national, what, uh, it was Bureau of Commercial Fisheries that came in and its name was changed to the National Marine Fisheries Service. Mm -hmm. So you had these three components making a total, as uh, Noah liked to say, a, a total, total earth agency. Wow, I love uh, that. I do too. And and your particular role early in your career at, in the NOAA Corps, and, and Tyler, this is something that you and I have come across in, in interviews, is the NOAA Corps is a quasi-military organization. This is the civilian Navy, I guess. How would you describe Skip? It's a uniformed thing. Yes. Well, we, we, yeah, we, we, we worked... Uh, we were not civilians. Uh, in fact, I have veteran status from my, my time in uh, uh, NOAA Corps. Uh, the, uh, we, we had full military status. Well, I won't say military. We weren't, our ships were not armed. Uh, we were not an armed service. And in that, that, that uh, uh, respect, we were similar to the public health service. There are about 5,000 public health service officers mm. uh, that are uh, commission officers. and. Uh, uh, we were the smallest uniform service, uh, 300, uh, three to 400, uh, uh, probably the maximum there ever was in uh, NOAA Corps. Um, officers who were, all of them had some sort of science or engineering degrees, or that, that was the, the general idea that the vast majority had this. Uh, uh, civil engineering, uh, uh, they started getting atmospheric scientists in the, uh, or, or those that had meteorology degrees in the, when, when we became NOAA, uh, uh, marine biologists, fisheries uh, uh, biologists, uh, little differentiation there. Okay. Uh, computer science, uh, electronic engineers, all of these sorts uh, made up the NOAA core. So this so is the a, uh, this is the smart people core. Is what this, this is. This is like this Starfleet. <laughs> this is of like the oceans. <laughs> well, well like I, I, I I think that's fairly highly complimentary. I mean, I've uh, certainly encountered. Uh, numerous, uh, I'll call them technocrats and the other armed services. Uh, uh, you know, today's world, uh, it, it's, it's uh, more than, um, it, it, it takes a lot to keep the electronic systems and communication systems and uh, logistic systems going in all the services these days. So uh, I, I'm not sure we're the smartest guys out there, but uh, certainly in our respective uh, realm where we're, we're very specialized uh, and clearly uh, up there toward uh, the top up to the top uh, uh and and one of the things that NOAA does and has uh, historically done is produce navigation charts so for all the mariners out there the NOAA uh navigation charts are uh, an accurate uh depiction of the coast meant to be uh, to ensure safe uh, safe sh uh, shipping and boating and recreational craft, all of that kind of thing, commercial fisheries. Uh, and there are people who do spend their life uh, surveying these bay systems and the coastlines and producing the NOAA charts. Uh, so, Skip, your role was as a ship, a, a member of the Corps, ultimately becoming a captain of part of the NOAA fleet. Uh, 
I don't know if many of our listeners understand that NOAA operates a, a fleet of vessels. Can you introduce us a little bit to the NOAA fleet? Okay. Uh, well, it's been a couple of years since I, I've been out of NOAA now. Uh, but on average, NOAA operates about 15 vessels. And these vessels range from, well, actually, we have a lot of smaller vessels as well. But uh, in fact, at one one time, a count was up to about 500. Uh, I'm not sure just what size they all were. But the major well, ships we're are the anywhere boys. from... Uh, say uh, 140 to uh, up to about two, I, th I think our biggest ships are about 270 feet in length and oh, about 3,000 tons or so. Uh, so they aren't big ships by either merchant or, or uh, naval standards. However, they're, they're designed for a specific purpose. Uh, uh, the ships that I spent my time on were primarily hydrographic survey vessels or bathymetric surveying. And by that hydrographic surveying, we, we differentiated. That was the inshore uh, work that was done for primarily nautical charting work. In other words, the surveying we did, we tried to make very precise, uh, as accurate as we could possibly get it with uh, the various systems that we had. And uh, bathymetric mapping being uh, a little less precise uh, for mapping primarily to uh, define the configuration of the seafloor uh, to produce as accurate maps as we could, but still uh, there wasn't quite the same impetus for uh, uh, safety of life and uh, uh, cargo as there was with the uh, uh, hydrographic surveying. Uh, there were fisheries research vessels, a number of them. Uh, they uh, uh, based out of the East Coast, Gulf Coast, uh, Seattle. Uh, I think we got a ship or two working out of Alaska these days with Alaska Fisheries, and uh, out of uh, out of Honolulu. I think we have a ship base there now as well. The uh, the well, actually, the ships don't work out of Seattle anymore. They've got a Newport, Oregon. That was changed uh, huh. probably about ten years ago. Uh, but most of my career, they were, were in Seattle. But uh, yeah, we, then we have ships that are. Basically, smaller vessels, estuarine research. Uh, uh, we, our bigger ships, the deep ocean ships, they can uh, they, they have worldwide capability. Uh, we've had a, 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 at least two or three vessels that have uh, circumnavigated the Earth during various projects. Uh, most of the time, they tend to work in uh, on projects in either the Atlantic or the Pacific, but uh, occasionally they'll they'll uh, head off into the Indian Ocean and and uh, far reaches of the uh, uh, Southern so, Ocean as well, uh, that being the ocean that's so we have, north of the, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so I just, you know, to summarize, we have this global fleet of pretty badass vessels uh, that, that you as a captain, ultimately, uh, you will be, you are in charge of commanding uh, one of these vessels, I suppose, uh, and executing a research mission so how does that go down let's let's just start at the beginning like how do you begin a, a mission like that as a captain well okay my job was i was primarily a what i i will call uh, I, I i i'm a coast surveyor that's where my heart and soul lay <laughs> with the old coast survey which was the nautical charting work that was the organization that produced nautical charts uh, never really considered that aspect of it research per se. It was more an engineering problem. Uh, 
Uh, we weren't interested in con uh, defining the bottom for the sake of uh, finding out uh, uh, further scientific insights, although that could be a, 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 a side product, if you will, uh, but uh, primarily to define the bottom for safety of navigation, uh, to, to make sure the mariners were safe and the uh, cargoes they, they carried in and that the environment uh, that what wasn't damaged if there were accidents. That, that's the primary purpose purpose of charting. Right. Uh, on the hydrographic survey ships, a captain was both the, you know, the equivalent of a chief scientist and the, uh, he was responsible for the survey work. He was also responsible for the safety of the ship. So that, uh, in, in that respect, a captain of a hydrographic survey ship or bathymetric survey ship, he wore two hats. Uh, if on the fishery ships, uh, it, that would sometimes be split. The, uh, depending on the nature of the project, uh, there would be scientists that would come on board. You'd have a chief scientist who was responsible for collecting the science. Well, the captain was primarily responsible for uh, the safety of the vessel and the safety of shipboard operations. Uh, that's also true of the research vessels that we'd operate, uh, the, the, like the deep ocean ships or the uh, estuarine research vessels. Uh, they tend to generally have the captain responsible for ship safety, making sure that uh, procedures are followed when gear goes over the side, uh, make sure that the, well, even a survey group, if there is a, a, a well, by a survey, we always call them survey technicians, no matter the mission, uh, that they were uh, following proper procedures, whether it be hydrography or fisheries or others. Uh, but the chief scientist would uh, have the final say on science matters. While the captain, if the weather got rough or he didn't want to go inshore, was worried about a reef or rocks or something on that order, uh, he would have to say on that. Mm. Uh, you know, in 27 years in the NOAA Corps, uh, you've had the chance to uh, conduct scientific uh, surveys uh, around the United States and up into the Arctic, uh, it sounds like an extraordinary career. When you think back at that period, which is sort of part one of your uh, five-decade career at NOAA, uh, this 27-year period in the Corps, uh, what are your fondest memories of that period uh, working for the agency as a in the NOAA Corps? Uh, you know, that's a tough one. I, I Besides shipboard, I, I had about... Uh, Oh, eight or nine years of uh, shipboard work. Uh, uh, I, I, I actually, I hate to say this. This wasn't Noah per se, but I think that one of the things that influenced my life the most. I, I spent a two-year stint at the uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography as a uh, liaison officer. I was not a student there, but I was working with what was called their deep tow group. Uh, this was in the early 1980s, 82 to 84. Um, this, this group was under the uh, direction of a Dr. Fred Spies, who was one of the uh, grand old men of oceanography. But uh, the deep toe instrument was a, it was sort of an early robotic instrument, if you will. It had all sorts of uh, sensors on it, side scan, uh, depth finding, uh, temperature sensors, uh, uh, television uh, for uh, monitoring the bottom, looking to see what you're finding, so cool. uh, photography, deep sea photography. So it had a number of uh, gadgets on it, will you say, and, and it was towed behind a vessel, but uh, it was meant for going into uh, postage stamp size areas 
and studying them in great detail. Uh, huh. Another thing, the ships that they had there, they had an early, uh, one of the early civil multi-beam systems. And uh, I was introduced to that system. And uh, during that period, I was able to work with a number of uh, world-class scientists. I'll say work, I was learning from them. Uh, uh, but uh, but I w- was made a part of their survey team. And I, I was introduced to the excitement as, as opposed to uh, hydrographic surveying where I loved going out getting the data. We, I, I always call this data gathering, getting it savants. Uh, but I, I, I love getting the data and love doing the work, but it wasn't quite the same as the excitement that you get with scientific uh, uh, exploration and scientific investigation. And uh, these people were, uh, they, they'd been doing this for a lot of them their whole life. And uh, they were still as enthusiastic about everything they were doing and as excited with every uh, uh, discovery that was made or every anomaly that was uh, observed. And in uh, uh, you know, a way that sort of rubbed off. And I, I look back and I, I uh, was really proud to have been part of the, uh, uh, the deep toe team, if you will. Mm. Uh, that's, within, that's cool. At Scripps. Uh, now the, the other I'd say deep for, drop. yeah, deep, yeah, deep toe is a, yeah, you can look that up, Scripps deep toe. And, but um, within NOAA, I, I think, uh, at least NOAA core, uh, the assignment that I really liked the best and that I probably could have uh, done forever if uh, uh, I headed the uh, exclusive economic zone mapping job. Actually, that was a direct outgrowth of having been at Scripps. Uh, Exclusive economic zone going out to 200 miles. And uh, 1983, uh, President Reagan signed a, uh, I forget what you call it, a, a directive, an executive order uh, declaring an executive, uh, the exclusive economic zone. Uh, and we uh, uh, we began with NOAA mapping the exclusive economic zone. And I, I headed that program for a number of years. Uh, actually had uh, five ships working at that time on uh what we called EEZ work, uh, and uh, multi-beam was uh, state-of-the-art equipment. Uh, uh, we were actually developing methodologies. I had a whole bunch of uh, uh, smart people I'll call it, <laughs> working with me and for me at, at that particular time, and and that to me was a uh, uh, it was a highlight of uh, my NOAA core career. Uh, we, we were making all sorts of th- these these multi-beam systems would see. Uh, we were discovering features that were not really discernible with the old single beam uh, sounding systems and uh, putting together maps that uh, showed features that in some cases had never been seen before on the seafloor. Hmm. Now, do you think, uh, I'm curious how well we understand the EEZ. Uh, NOAA has been, as you said, working on mapping and trying to understand this exclusive economic zone now since going back into the 1980s. And the EEZ uh, is an area that all countries around, uh, coastal uh, nations around the world assert. And it is, as you said, out to 200 miles offshore of the national boundaries of, of coastal countries it uh, it is an area where the country would assert some sort of economic power and jurisdiction over who gets to fish there who gets to exploit the minerals and how that area is utilized uh so the eez is a very important international uh area of jurisdiction for 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 uh ocean states around the world i'm wondering now here we are in 2020 
over the 50 years that you were at NOAA, uh, do you feel like we have a pretty good handle on what is in the EEZ? Are there areas that are uh, still to be explored and studied and documented, or do you feel like we've we've finished the task now? Oh, actually, uh, uh, during my tenure, uh, we only we only finished about 150,000 uh, square nautical miles out of about four million. Wow. So uh, <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> and then quite for, a bit more. for for a variety of reasons, uh, Noah ceased doing that. Uh, uh, some pragmatic, uh, having to do with uh, devoting, uh, you know, ship resource, additional ship resource back to inshore surveying. Um, some political, uh, there, there were, but no one ceased doing that at that point in time. Um, after I retired from NOAA Corps in the year, uh, in about 2000, NOAA formed a uh, ocean exploration and research uh, uh, office in the, uh, and then the larger, if you will, larger office, major mainline component of the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research within NOAA. That uh, group has done some, uh, some EEZ mapping. Uh, the, some of it they uh, would combine, uh, they would cooperate with the Coast Guard, uh, the Coast Guard uh, icebreaker, uh, the, the uh, Melville, it had, I think Melville was the name of it, uh, it had a multi-beam system on it. They did some work up in the Arctic. Uh, they did, uh, then not the icebreaker, but another ship, they did some work out of the uh, Pacific Islands. Uh, but uh, still, there's a huge amount of exclusive economic zone that has yet been uh, surveyed adequately or at least to the point where you have a, uh, the equivalent of a, a land topographic map. We call them bathymetric maps, but it's basically a seafloor topographic map. Okay, uh, let, me, let, let me understand better uh, what your life was like when you're doing this uh, EEZ mapping. Uh, First of all, were you focused in a particular uh, area or region, you know, around the U.S. map uh, to help us get an idea of, of where you were? Well, uh, okay, we'll, uh, uh, okay, two things. Uh, one, when I was head of the EZ program, I was headquartered in, in Rockville, Maryland, which was the uh, headquarters for the uh, what was then called the National Ocean Service and NOAA headquarters. Uh, well, uh, they were uh, located in, in Washington, D.C. Okay, so that was a land assignment. But I did also uh, command a NOAA exclusive economic zone ship. Uh, actually, it was after I had uh, been been chief of that party. I was, huh. uh, NOAA ship Mount Mitchell. On that, on that vessel, uh, we were working in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, uh, Western Gulf. Um, now, by that, we would uh, generally have, I guess, a way that uh, uh, I like to schedule it was 17 and 4, uh, 17 days out, four days in uh, for uh, resupplying a little bit of uh, R&R for the crew uh, and, and the officers, uh, uh, but uh, refueling, this sort of thing. And then, then 17 days, uh, well, 
it, it was basically equivalent of maybe 16 to 15 days on site because you'd have to go from your uh, port area out to the working area. Uh, while you're doing this sort of survey work, you have a number of sensors operating. You have the, uh, of course, the sounding system. Uh, the uh, you'd have the uh, well. We didn't have the uh, 24/7 global positioning system then, but we did have it enough that we had electronic navigation systems that we would set up ourselves, and we would use uh, the global positioning system to help us keep those systems calibrated. We get maybe eight hours a day of uh, GPS or glo global positioning system that would calibrate it, so we wouldn't have to go back into a uh, a place where we could visually calibrate our, our navigation systems. Oh. Uh, you just We would have to take uh, what was called a conductivity temperature, a CTD cast, uh, to be able to correct in, in the ocean as you send, um, just, just like with land uh, uh, seismic reflection profiling uh, in the ocean, uh, because of different temperatures of water, different density layers, uh, as a sound wave passes through the water, you will get the bending of those rays. And so we would have to take CTDs to be able to correct the uh, both uh, sound velocity and also for ray bending purposes. Hold on a second, you know, though. Are you, are you telling me that you're leaving out when the boat deploys, you're leaving out of Washington, D.C.? No, no. I, I was, uh, uh, say that again, please. When you leave, so I'm trying to figure out where geographic, when you were, let's just take, for example, the vessel that you commanded in this EEZ mapping exercise. Where where were you geolo geographically? Oh, okay. Uh, geographically. Okay. The ship was based out of Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. That was our East Coast ship base. Cool. But and the project that I worked on was in the Gulf of Mexico. Ah. So we would take the ship to the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, so you'd steam. Uh, this was a ship that. Uh, so you would sail from Norfolk, Virginia, down to the Gulf of Mexico, and then begin your, uh, you know, your mapping there. I, su I suppose once you're on site. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah, yeah, mapping mission. That that is correct. I'm just and, trying to get uh, a rhythm, get a feel for the rhythm of how how these things would operate. You know. Yeah, it was the same way with the West Coast ships. They they worked out. Now they work out of Newport, Oregon. The the, the majority of them, although a couple of them are stationed in Alaska and at least one in Hawaii, but uh, we have a we have a couple of ship bases in various areas. Uh, for the bigger ships, they can basically go anywhere. Uh, Into so the ship I was on. Uh, uh, okay, go ahead. Well, I'm I'm curious, you know, for the for the taxpayers out there, we spend a lot of money. You as you said, uh, we have a fleet of vessels, t small to quite quite sizable, up to 275 feet. We've got 300 to 500 uh, NOAA Corps officers. We've got this extensive uh, scientific uh, research and hydrographic surveying work, bathymetric work. Um, what is the best argument for the investment that the federal government has made in this basic science and mapping and surveying work? Has this been something that the country has been dedicated to historically, and why is it important that we do it? Well, historically, we've been doing it since 1807. Uh, 
Yeah, surveying the coast, uh, first of all, I'll speak to the hydrographic surveying and the things. Uh, I don't know what the exact number is now. Uh, I've heard anywhere from uh, 95 to 98 percent of our cargo comes into uh, U.S. ports via, well, into the United States via ships uh, or or international commerce. Uh, No ship can either, no commercial ship or even as far as that goes, naval ship can come into a U.S. port without having up-to-date charts on it just from the standpoint of the, uh, once again, the safety aspect. So basically all of our maritime cargo is dependent upon having adequate nautical charts. Um, that's, that's one aspect of it. Uh, pretend you're a fisherman, you're, uh, you're out off the coast of Maine, you wanna, uh, if you don't have a chart, where, where are all the rocks at? And there are lots of them off the coast of Maine. Uh, you can, it, it, as far as understanding, uh, if you're a fisheries research vessel, you're you're uh, studying the life cycle of various uh, commercial fishes as well as uh, uh, sometimes non-commercial, but uh, generally they're they're concerned with the commercial fisheries. Uh, you need to know the the uh, um, you know where these things live, how they live, what the uh, there, there, shall we say, ecological boundaries, uh, both yep. from the standpoint of bottom configuration, uh, uh, water column configuration, what the uh, water temperatures are, the currents, um, just all of these sorts of things, uh, if you will. The uh, yeah, basic essential understanding of the world around us uh, to, as you say, move about it safely, but also to figure out what resources are available, whether commercial fish stocks or other uh, ocean resources uh, and how those might be used to the advantage of the country. It's just uh, this is it's one of the things I love about NOAA is its commitment to uh, a basic understanding of the world around us as it relates to the coast and the open ocean and, uh, and the atmosphere. Uh, we've got to know uh, what's going on in the world around us to uh, to live and work effectively. I mean. It's uh, it's it's the least political agency out there, I think, in terms of its fundamental scientific commitment. Uh, did you uh, did you enjoy your tenure in the NOAA Corps before you moved over to be, as you said, the the chief of stuff at the NOAA Central Library? I'm very interested in that part of your career. But as you came to the end of your uh, tenure as a court uh, NOAA Corps officer. Uh, was it something that you looked on very fondly? Did it was? It sounds like a great career. Uh, yeah, I uh, uh, yeah. To be blunt, I, I loved that part of uh, uh, my career. I, I uh, um, as 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 I've told a number of people, I probably five percent of the uh, of the time I I. Uh, fun- Maybe five to ten percent wasn't so enjoyable. I think that's true of just about any career. There, there are uh, things that pop up. There are little failures you have occasionally. Uh, but uh, I'd say at least ninety percent of what I did, I I uh, I wouldn't uh, give up for anything. Um, it, it it was good. It was a uh, time spent on the ocean. A lot of it outdoors. Uh, uh, you just, uh, uh, as I said, most of that career it was a it was both a physical and intellectual adventure, the work that was associated with it. Uh, so, and you, you had the added benefit that you felt you were actually accomplishing something for society. 
and I and I, I think like uh, uh, I, I think I am psychologically a, a public servant by that. Uh, I I have a uh, it, it gives me a good feeling to know that I did do something for society working for that agent at that time for the for the agency. Yeah, you know I think that's a perfect transition, uh, and going from. A full career, a full damn career in the NOAA Corps. You've headed up programs. You've commanded vessels. And then I guess this is a retirement that happens at this point. But then you continue on. You remain engaged in NOAA. And I'm just, can you walk us through what was going on in, in your mind that you wanted more Noah, at that point, after after retiring well, for the first time, there, there's uh, two parts to this. I mean, uh, it, yeah. Uh, uh, prior to retirement from Noah Corps, I was uh, on staff to the director of Noah Corps uh, uh, after uh, the last sea tour that I had down in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, uh, basically, uh, I, I was an 06 gopher, uh, occasionally writing position papers. Uh, you know, responding to inquiries, this sort of thing. Uh, uh, but I was also given permission at that time to begin writing a history of the uh, NOAA Corps. And the NOAA Corps evolved from the old Coast and Geodetic Survey. Uh, so I did a lot of research, uh, library research at that time. Uh, uh, actually, we were located next door to the library, basically, and uh, uh, did a lot of, uh, lot of research. And... Uh, um, besides learning about the old Coast and Geodetic Survey, I also learned the structure of a good part of the library uh, just to be able to find stuff and uh, find out what kind of books they had and what kind of information, this sort of thing. So after I, I retired uh, from NOAA Corps, I actually uh, had, a, had a year that was, I didn't, didn't mention that before, but I had a year that I was uh, a teaching at a, uh, a teaching assistant at a uh, local high school uh, teaching computer science to actually not to involve stuff, but uh, uh, you know word processing, databases, this sort of thing. Uh, then library called me up and asked me, uh, "We need somebody that uh, working in reference. Would you be willing to do that?" And uh, uh, and I said, "Sure. That I really like that uh, uh, better. I hate that, you know, teaching was good, but." Uh, working for NOAA was better <laughs> at, right. at the time. So uh, they, they uh, brought me into the library because I basically had knowledge of it and had knowledge of the agency. Um, so I started out just being on the reference desk, and then uh, uh, it was sort of like being working at that time. It was like working in an old bookstore. For those of us that uh, love books, uh, it was ideal for me. Uh, I mean, gee, I'm getting paid to do stuff that I think is really cool. <laughs> I just want to say I've never been to uh, the NOAA headquarters. I've never seen the library, but I can just picture <laughs> Cat and Skip there at the at the reference desk. That is so cool yeah. that Cat and Skip. You have a core Catton right there. He's done all the research, knows the stuff. Well, I didn't. I I, I didn't wear my uniform at that point. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> but but. Uh, there were people who called me Captain Skip uh, yeah, or Captain, Captain Skip. Skippy, depending Skippy. on, a, you know, whatever. But uh, 
regardless, uh, it, it was good. I, I still knew a lot of people from Noah. So, you know, with, with just the strict reference function, uh, you know, people would call in and they, if, if there were particularly esoteric questions, I would generally uh, either know how to direct them to an answer through the literature or uh, depending on uh, the nature of the question, I would know somebody at NOAA or know where to, to direct them within NOAA. So in that respect, I, you know, I, I was uh, pretty well ahead of the curve as far as being part of the, uh, uh, part of the reference staff went. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I liked it. Uh, the other thing about working on the reference desk then, it was, uh, it was prior to the internet really taking off. And so we would still get a lot of traffic at the desk and, and foot traffic through the library. Uh, so I met a lot of uh, people that I didn't know, uh, people from different offices. Uh, we were there at the headquarters of NOAA, headquarters area. And so I, I would meet people through uh, from all parts of NOAA basically that would come in to uh, acquire stuff and, uh, you know, file that away. And uh, uh, if, if a question came up later, I'd know, hmm, here, here's another contact that I have. So I, I got to know a lot of people and I got to know uh, the structure of NOAA better by working there. Hmm. You know, and I think this this uh, pulling together the history of the NOAA core, but also in in your work at, for 23 years, I like this as the chief of stuff at the library. Uh, can you talk to us about the in the pre-interview? We had a discussion. We were we were we you were introducing us to Ferdinand Hessler, I believe was his name, one of the uh, early uh, surveyors within NOAA back in the 1800s. I found it a very interesting story about his career at NOAA and and what it might help us understand about uh, the agency. Can you introduce our audience to uh, Ferdinand Hessler and what and, and the work that you've done about about him? Sure. Uh, yeah, Ferdinand Hessler will we'll, uh, uh, well, you, you just brought up what I guess is called an anachronism. Uh, um, Ferdinand Hassler came to the United States in 1805, a Swiss immigrant. He uh, uh, very technically competent. Uh, it was what was called a polymath. Uh, he, besides being a, a technocrat for the for the era, he was also he'd been a uh, uh, attorney general thing. So he was both left brain, right brain sort of guy, and uh, uh, he, he understood to some degree administration. He didn't get along so well in the, some of the people in the U.S., but. Uh, Regardless, he, he was mathematically inclined. He had a vision uh, from his work in Switzerland. He'd also uh, helped uh, produce a geodetic survey of portions of Switzerland. Uh, geodetic being uh, you're looking at the sphericity of the earth or the uh, shape, you're trying to determine the shape of the earth uh, and you're taking into consideration spherical uh, geometry uh, as well as right. uh, it, it's right. not like your plane surveyor in a given area. Uh, so anyway, uh, he had a vision that he wanted to bring a, a geodetic survey to the United States, as well as uh, uh, help develop a, a series of coastal charts of the United States. 1807, Thomas Jefferson requested, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I guess you'd call it a request for proposal. And uh, <laughs> Ferdinand Hassler's uh, uh, answer to that uh, won. So he ended up uh, buying books and instruments for the Coast Survey over the next couple of years. Uh, 
1816, he actually uh, ended up starting work, but he only had a few folks with him. Uh, his son, uh, three army officers, and I think was the way it went. And uh, the next year, Congress is asking him, where are the charts? Uh, well, he was doing the survey work, which is uh, in, the, in the Coast Survey, you, you, you have three primary things you have to do to make a nautical chart. Uh, first of all, you have to develop a geographic grid. That's what you, a uh, lat-long grid, if you will, that you place everything within, both the shoreline and the and the soundings on the chart. Uh, so that was a, that's the first step. Uh, the second step is to develop a topographic map uh, so that you know the configuration of the coast. Uh, uh, so step number two, and then step number three is to actually go out with a boat and position your vessel relative to known points within this geographic uh, grid on land. Uh, Congress, of course, didn't understand this in 1816, uh, time frame 1817. So they uh, basically fired him in 1818. Uh, 1828, uh, they gave the job to the Navy and the Army, the Army for the land survey, the Navy for the uh, offshore survey. 1828, the uh, Secretary of the Navy said the charts were useless and pernicious that the uh, Navy had been producing. And so within the next few years, uh, by 1832, Hassler was reinstated. It was at that time he started really building the foundation of what became the Coast and Geodetic Survey, which was America's first, uh, I guess we'd call it pure science agency. Yeah. Once again, geodesy was the primary thing, the, uh, the land survey, that was the first part of it. Uh, but uh, then, then the topography, then, then the soundings, but he also had to develop uh, engravers, draftsmen, uh, actually construction people for the, some of the, uh, uh, the stations they had to produce. They were, he actually built the first science agency in America. Now, the, he built this on a uh, philosophic uh, premise of accuracy, precision, and scientific integrity. Uh, the man was unshakable with his uh, devotion to uh, those three uh, attributes, if you will, and uh, uh, even to the point where he was uh, often criticized by Congress, attacked by Congress, if you will, attacked within the uh, local news, sort of like you see it all. You've seen this within the uh, global warming community. Uh, you know, the, the scientists are all wrong. They're doing it just for profit. They're uh, their methodology is wrong. You hear it all the time. I, I'm not saying that any of that for the guys, but these are the mm. sort of attacks that actually began in the American science community at that time. Mm. So, so it's been going on for uh, almost 200 years now. <laughs> so Ferdinand, <laughs> yeah. a couple of things about about Ferdinand Hessler. If we were to go to the NOAA library, would we find original Ferdinand Hessler uh uh, survey maps from the 1800s? Uh, those, you are, you are, would not, well, actually, you would find one. You would find the first topographic sheet that was produced. Uh, I, I don't know if they still have it on the wall, but we had it, uh, we had it framed, uh, at least a portion of it, and uh, in the NOAA Central Library, uh, which would have been, um, I think it was a place, uh, I, I forget if it was, uh, um, was on Long Island. It was on Long Island shoreline. I, I can't remember the exact uh, uh, bay that it was at. Uh, wow. So we, we do have, in fact, one one topographic sheet that was produced by Hassler. Uh, National Archives has the uh, 
the original sheets, both the topographic sheets and the uh, hydrographic survey sheets. Uh, the, uh, the There are a number of, a lot of this stuff has been digitized, but not all of it. Uh, the the uh, University of Alabama, they, they, I provided them with a bunch of negatives a number of years back that uh, probably 20 years ago that uh, they digitized. They were, they were photographs of the sheets. Hmm. Uh, so they have those online. I'm curious uh, because, you know, the, uh, your work as a NOAA Corps officer, as a surveyor, hydrographic and bathymetric surveyor, someone who helped produce the modern uh, navigation charts for NOAA, uh, when you look back at Ferdinand Hessler's work, uh, obviously they didn't have the same kind of equipment we have today, but what's your judgment? How did they do? How accurate yeah, and you precise? Feel connected yeah, how, how accurate and precise was his work? Uh the, the only way that you could really tell that was through what they called baseline measurements. So triangulation, the, the, the geodesy was, was done by a system called triangulation. Uh, triangulation, you, you have to start out by measuring a baseline somewhere on the surface of the earth, a, a fairly long line, 10 to 11 miles long. Uh, the way they did that and the way that Hassler had to do this, he had to produce his uh, his own measuring equipment. And this measuring equipment up until uh, about, oh, the late 1800s, 1890s or so, uh, these were various types of metallic bars that were precisely machined to be uh, as close as possible to exactly uh, two meters, four meters, uh, even up to eight meters long. And then, then you would line up a straight line uh, you, would, you would have to keep these things on a straight line and uh, you would leapfrog this bar down the line till you got to the other end. Really? And sometimes these, you know, these laying it, laying it end to end in order to determine the distance that you've traveled down the line. That's how it was done yes, in, in two or correct. four meter yes, that increments. Now, that's a hell of a deal. I would have thought yeah, they would have looked through a, a peep glass. I was going well, yeah, somewhere totally have, different with this, mind, Skip. Uh, it, it wasn't until you had some sort of electronic system that you could measure distances looking through. <laughs> some no, no, sort of, no, I was going with the triangulation. Of, uh, I thought it was going to have to do with an uh, angle. Like a sextant yeah, or a this survey. Was, this, yeah. this was a manual method, hand wow. over hand, or basically leapfrogging. And it would, it would take uh, you know a month and a half, two months to measure this, uh, this line. And all sorts of internal wow. checks. They had to keep... Uh, track of the temperature because of the expansion of the various sorts of metals. Uh, they, they had a number of designs for these things. But these bars, uh, actually, there was a uh, the, the hard way. The two that I know of, the two, uh, there was a baseline up in mine, Bain, not Maine, uh, not measured by Hassler, but by his, uh, what is the, the fellow that came after him, uh, Alexander Dallas Beach. Uh, it was about a seven, eight mile baseline. And it was measured, the endpoints were measured with GPS. They were within about two, three centimeters of uh, what had Ooh, been measured by page. That's what I wanted and, uh, to know. So they were pretty yeah. good at it uh, with mechanical techniques to measuring, measure a seven or eight mile long, long line with a piece of metal that's, you know, two or three, four meters long and get it within two or three centimeters. I got to say yes. they were good at what they did. And... I'm, I'm curious about, you said that at Hessler was the founder of the first scientific agency in the United States and as a federal agency devoted to scientific 
uh, work and the principles that he grounded his uh, concept of the agency was accuracy, precision. And what was the third? Scientific integrity. Scientific integrity. Is that... Is that are those principles still at the heart of Noah's work? Are they recognized as sort of the founding principles of the agency's effort in the scientific uh, realm? Is it is Hessler still uh, someone that the agency looks to as their uh, basically founding father of sorts? Well, you have to look at the the uh, various divisions of Noah today. Uh, the old co- the Coast Survey, which uh, that's still the Office of the Coast Survey, makes nautical charts. Uh, the National Geodetic Survey still does geodesy. Then we have a, a group that's called the Center for Operational uh, Oceanographic Products. Uh, th- that's tides and currents. Those three offices now within NOAA, uh, they're within the they are offices within a mainline component, the National Oceans uh, Service. Uh, is, yeah, service. Uh, those three descended directly from the Old Coast Survey. Hmm. Uh, they still, uh, th- they are still aware of the contributions of their ancestor uh, agencies and ancestor uh, scientists and engineers. Uh, Office of Ocean Exploration, certainly anybody that's, uh, well, I'm getting tongue-tied here. I apologize for that. That's all right. Okay, let's say that any organization that is concerned with instrumental observation followed by mathematical analysis and making sure that they're getting this as accurate as possible, whether it be within NOAA has a national environmental satellite uh, group. They, we, we've got the uh, Office of Oceanic Atmospheric Research. We've got uh, uh, people within the Weather Service. All of these people that are doing instrumental observation and then doing their best to make sure that these numbers are right and that their analysis is correct are following precepts that were first stated in the United States by Ferdinand Hassler. Hmm. Uh, to some degree, yeah, the Old Coast Survey, to some degree, was the NASA of the 19th century. Interesting. Um, well, you know, I, I, you would think that trying to accurately measure, precisely measure, and understand the physical world around us would be uh, a, a topic that everyone would get behind and, and uh, support. But the fact of the matter is uh, evolving understanding of the physical world around us and what's going on in it is uh, highly charged because the information has implications for policy and economics and and uh, what is considered right or wrong or what we should or should not do. And in the last 10 minutes we've got, uh, Skip, um, you know, you're, I'm just curious about, about your observations of the role that science plays now, why we struggle sometimes to accept basic scientific information and how can we avoid the topic we're talking about global warming here we're talking about scientists who measure and count and catalog the physical world around us they're telling us certain things but we're not always receptive to this information is there something about the history of this interplay between scientific understanding of the world policy and politics that that you could share with our listeners as someone who worked at NOAA for 50 years? Well, uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm neither a sociologist nor a psychologist, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. So this is, uh, I won't call it tongue-in-cheek, but not from uh, one that's an expert in these areas. But, but I think there are a couple of uh, issues. I, I, I think that uh, even in the early years of the, uh, of the Coast Survey, Coast and Geodetic Survey, uh, there's always been an element within, uh, I'll call it the, the political world that has uh, denied the necessity for, uh, shall we say, uh, doing the work as accurately as you can. It, it's too costly. It takes too long. Although if you don't do it as accurately as you can, uh, 10 years later, you need that accuracy and you have to do it again. Uh, this this has been uh, shown numerous times. Uh, the the uh, I, I, I think the ed there have been concerted efforts by various, uh, I'll say, say economic groups that have an economic stake in uh, various regulations, uh, various uh, 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 national attitudes that it is with it, it, it is within their um, interest to make sure that, if not disinformation, at least uh, adequate uh, information uh, on the fringes of, say, a theory or whatever are presented that doubt is uh, engendered in the minds of the various receivers. And th this has been a pervasive problem, uh, probably uh, uh, for the last hundred years or so <laughs> uh, within various aspects of our society. I, I think it's pretty safe to say you can look back at the, the arguments with uh, the smoking causing cancer, uh, the same sort of, uh, and even secondhand smoke causing cancer that there was a, a concerted disinformation campaign to try to eliminate regulations uh, regarding this. Uh, so th these sorts of techniques have also been applied by those with uh, economic interest to uh, things that are almost, that are established scientific fact. Global warming is a fact. Uh, there's, there's no getting around it. I mean, I, how, what do we have? Three major hurricanes that, you know, major, that means they're, 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 they're uh, category three or above. Yep. Uh, a category five hitting down in Honduras, uh, uh, category four, two weeks before category, I think it was a four when uh, uh, the uh, hurricane hit up in Louisiana, the first one, the uh, one that hit Western Louisiana. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, historic year. Historic storms. hurricane year in the Atlantic Basin this year. I think uh, astonishing. Uh, but you're right. I think we're. I think the days yeah. when the scientific doubt uh, uh, can hold the center stage in our public dialogue on on climate change should be coming to an end. Uh, when you look back at as you were saying that you look at the the political and our decision making systems that there are those people who do not fully appreciate Hessler's original commitment to accuracy, precision and scientific integrity and to let the research and the science take us to an understanding. Um, when you look back over the history of NOAA and other uh, scientific endeavors the agency has undertaken. Should we be optimistic that ultimately the truth wins out, or can these kind of scientific understandings and uh, 
be bottled up. Uh, are you an optimist uh, uh, about the future? Oh, our- uh, I, I, I'm. Uh, I wouldn't. I, I would have committed suicide a long time ago if I wasn't an optimist. Uh, maybe bad term. Me, me too. But but look, <laughs> uh, what what are things that we have taken care of? I mean, you know, I use the example of smoking, but acid rain, that was another issue that uh, was fought tooth and nail. Uh, the global ozone hole or the, 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 the Antarctic ozone hole and, and the destruction of the ozone by uh, chloro, what were they? Chloro, Chlorofluorocarbon, uh, CFCs, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of, the, all of that, all of those were fights, but, but they've, they've passed into common knowledge. And, it, and it's they're no longer fights, and and our body politic has, has uh, you know, ultimately concurred. Uh, the the uh, you know uh, and, you know even the the uh, our our present the politicizing of wearing uh, masks. I mean, as a uh, I'll probably get somebody sitting on my doorstep, but uh, this uh, yeah. The, you know, wearing a mask is is a an affront to my personal freedom. That sort of stuff. Uh, hey, come on, I mean, you know, take take care of your neighbor. Don't go spreading your spluey all over the place. It's just, uh, it, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's just, yeah, let- yeah. It, it's yeah, global warming. And unfortunately, it appears that the new administration, when it comes in, is is really serious about this and. Uh, will be the last nation on Earth to, uh, what is it, sign the, uh, or I guess we were part of the, were we part of the comparison court? Yeah, or not? yeah, under the Obama administration. Yeah. And then we withdrew yeah. under, yeah. under, and under Trump, President yeah. Trump. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. Ultimately, the truth wins out. Uh, I mean, I, I read a thing uh, just, just the other day about, uh, the coho salmon going up uh, various uh, northwest, uh, well, both could, uh, primarily U.S. streams these days because there's a lot more roads and whatever. But uh, there's a um, compound in tires that uh, that yeah. uh, just normal wear of the tires on the road. Uh, this material uh, it ends up on the road as sort of a microplastic material. It goes into streams and uh, it, and it's actually been uh, killing a lot of the coho salmon. But when this announcement was made, the tire companies, uh, at least one of them, said, yeah, we're going to try to look at this and do our best to uh, try to take care of it so that uh, this doesn't happen anymore. You know, maybe I'm overly optimistic with that, but uh, it, it, it certainly seemed like uh, a very reasonable article on it. And uh, uh, hopefully this this uh, will come to pass. It's just I, I, I think that. You know, if you're a global, if you want to live on the beach in Florida these days, you have to be aware of global warming. You know, just, no question. You know, the ocean is expanding, and you're getting flooded a lot down there. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it, it has to be getting ingrained in people's consciousness at this point, and I, I firmly believe that that it is, and that there are very few people that want to see a world in worse shape. Uh, by the time they pass on than, than, than what they came into it uh, with. You know, it's interesting that uh, the original kind of mission, I imagine, that Jefferson uh, envisioned, President Jefferson, that is, uh, right. with, with uh, Ferdinand Hassler, is, was to study the natural world. You know, you think the atmosphere 
and ocean, you think of of our planet. You think, uh, as you mentioned, a full planet agency. Uh, you think about uh, physics, uh, the how the ways in which currents move, fluids, the air, the water, etc. And what's interesting is that from the get go, those that study of the physical world has been run up against and runs up against people. And that has been one of, you know, NASA to my under to, when you're in space, you don't have this problem. At least it's not as direct. I guess there's a meteor <laughs> or something that can come in. But in at NOAA, it is because this planet is we we, we are here and um, it's been the, the, the dynamic between the political pressures of the, co- as you said, Peter, the consequences of what's discovered and the ramifications for what that means is, uh, I guess, I'm going to just say threatening to uh, some yeah. to, to groups of people. And that has cu- created a great deal of scrutiny. But at the same time, we need it in this moment more than than ever. And uh, yeah. the cool thing I've got to say about Noah that, um, you know, this is just my personal thing, but when I was out there in the Florida Keys and you'd see those Noah buoys out, you know, the p- parts of the reef are in uh, preservation. You know, they're in they're in uh, conservation where they've they've they'll put reef these white yeah, national marine sanctuary. Right. Exactly. They're, it's yeah, it's yeah. part of the national marine sanctuary. And they'd have Noah would have gone out in certain sensitive areas areas and pre-positioned mooring buoys so that people aren't dropping their anchor in there. And you. When you get when when one has the opportunity to get out and and see these spaces and experience them, I I think and and credit to Noah for like the Nears program, Peter. Yeah. Another opportunity where the public can get out. Um, I just think that that Noah's done an amazing job of creating opportunities to get the public out and connect to. Uh, the physical world beyond the numbers, beyond the data, beyond a map, beyond a chart, as important as those things are. Uh, oh, yeah. Politically, you need to have people understand the the power of the planet physically, like be in the water, to be inspired, by be it. inspired by it, be yeah. touched by it. Um, and I guess that's kind of my question, Skip. My final question for you is how. Do, do you do you see that as being an important part of the future with Noah? Uh, both in your experience, I know you created you kind of you 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 uh, digitized a whole bunch of the photography, um, but you were also a Noah cap. Tell talk to us about the how Noah needs to. Uh, yeah, what's the future hold? The future hold, but specifically with regard to communication to the public. Well, yeah, that's. I, I, I think it's a it, there. There are a couple aspects of this. I think I think first of all, uh, somehow the science education has to be uh, I won't say improved but enhanced. Uh, people have to understand that we're on uh, spaceship Earth, and probably not many of us are going to get off for at least a number of generations. Uh, so it, it behooves us all to learn about this planet and to help take care of it. I think uh, from the standpoint of communicating with people, uh, 
I, I guess one of the major uh, things I was connected with, uh, if you ever go to Washington, D.C., uh, the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Natural History Museum, our National Museum of Natural History, uh, one of its wings is uh, Ocean Hall, and I, I was uh, uh, really honored to have been part of the team that helped produce that, the NOAA team, uh, vetting, vetting the science and making suggestions for uh, some of the exhibits. Uh, that gets six million visitors a year, at least it was prior to uh, this past year. Uh, it's a way that, that is a way of educating people, uh, you know, trying to help. There are elements of NOAA, I believe their ocean exploration uh, and research office, Office of Ocean Exploration and Research. I think 10% of their budget, even when they were started, they had to dedicate to education. And, the, and they've done a huge amount uh, uh, with this. But, I, but there are other elements of NOAA that are actually uh, unable to do this. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I, I think that uh, hopefully, perhaps during the Biden administration, there will be uh, more more funds, uh, shall we say, put on the, uh, not, not, not sideline, but uh, dedicated to uh, these various environmental agencies. Uh, EPA, I hope it's uh, re-strengthened again. Uh, uh, elements of the USGS, all of these that they they uh, obtain more funding for education purposes. I th the people of the United States have to understand this, uh, and it doesn't matter as far as the ocean goes, whether you live in Kansas or Montana or where you live, uh, the ocean's gonna affect your life. Uh, it's a good number to remember for anybody that's not aware of this, 50% uh, of our oxygen comes out of the ocean from the uh, uh, little green plankton planktons that are out there. Uh, so, yes, so the indeed. ocean affects us all, and uh, we we have to uh, uh, be aware of this. But not just me and you, who are we're advocates, and uh, I won't go so far as to say I'm an advocate like you folks are. But uh, certainly, I'm I'm uh, part of the choir. Uh, preaching to the choirs. Well, say. I'd say you're a little better than part of the choir. Uh, if, if, if 50 Soloist. Year, yeah, I would say 50-year career uh, with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration actually predates it slightly. But, uh, Skip, I think uh, you're a dedicated public servant, uh, the kind of people who we need out there doing credible scientific work as you say as Hessler says accuracy precision scientific integrity that's the foundation for understanding the world around us and uh, like you I think ultimately I am an optimist uh, with respect to climate change and the future of the planet uh, reality I like to say is a persistent teacher and uh, we can ignore Indeed. the facts uh, as long as we can but ultimately uh, the reality of the world around us will will teach us that the climate is changing when the sea levels are too high in Charleston and there's billions of dollars needed and coastal cities are under threat from storms. Uh, the world speaks to us and uh, there's a point where we have to listen. Uh, it overcomes the ideological limits and it's people like you and all of the great people at NOAA who are out there doing the hard science to understand the world that I think gives me hope and uh, I really appreciate you taking time to join us on the podcast today well, okay I guess uh, yeah it was great talking with you and uh, 
Yep, and I, I hope that uh, all the, <laughs> like I say, I, I mean, I get a little over the hill here, but uh, oh, uh, regardless, I, I think there's a whole uh, uh, army of of uh, younger folks that are out there that uh, are, are carrying the torch. So yep. uh, I think that uh, the, the world's, uh, we, we just, the world will be a better place. It will be. And that's all I appreciate. I appreciate it ended on his positive note. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Captain Skip Taberge, a retired NOAA Corps officer and chief of stuff. I love that at the NOAA Library. But what a career. And thank you for sharing your observations about the agency and about the world around us, Skip. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Have a good day. Jesus said.